Okay, everybody, uh, welcome to this week's episode of um, Popcorn Drink Combo, also known as Doug and Peter Theater. I'm Doug. Welcome, Peter. Welcome. That kind of rhymed. <laughs> That's the plan. Um, this week, uh, we are going to be talking about Paul Verhoeven's 1997 um, genre masterpiece, Starship Troopers. But before we get into that, I just want to remind everybody uh, to please review us on iTunes. And if you want to reach out and contact us, you can email us at combo at gmail.com and you can make comments or suggestions about movies for us to podcast on and if we do uh, a podcast based on your recommendation we will give you a shout out on air um you want to summarize starship troopers for us peter starship troopers in name is a Heinlein book um robert Heinlein. A uh, book from, I guess, the 50s, I would imagine. I'm not sure. Late 50s, yeah. early 60s, I think. And, um, But uh, in subject is really about, um, about uh, a militaristic, futuristic Earth at war with an, a species of insects that they call bugs that are aliens on another planet. And um, they seem to be not always winning the war against the against the bugs um but they certainly fight frequently and uh johnny uh the hero uh goes off to fight the bugs joins the infantry his, his entire home city of buenos aires gets destroyed um and he has a a couple of there's a sort of a love triangle set up with uh two other um, girls from his hometown that evolves during the movie. And uh, in the end, they find a uh, bug, um, an intelligent bug, and make some progress in the war. And he's reunited with some of his friends at the end of the movie. And he sort of progresses um, to become a salty kind of uh, um, leader of... Veteran. Yeah, veteran and, and, and troop leader um, at the end. And uh, the 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 tone of the movie is interesting because it's it's sort of a cult movie that I think is getting more attention later, maybe as having been misunderstood when it came out. Um, I think when when it came out, people sort of viewed it just as a, a standard uh, fodder, um, as a sort of a standard sci-fi comic-y, comic booky action movie. But I think they kind of missed the um the sarcasm and the satire in it i don't uh, know you know because people often say that exact thing but i remember when i saw it walking out and talking about the satire aspects and the nazi imagery and yeah all but, of that stuff i mean maybe the broader audience didn't catch on but i i distinctly remember conversations about that then i think that certainly plenty of people got the joke and you can watch the movie on a lot of levels. I mean, you can watch this movie as a great genre sci-fi action film. And you can also watch it as a lot of political sarcasm and satire. Well, this came out after RoboCop, right? Which Paul Verhoeven Right, this is, I believe, his, his, I think this is his first film after RoboCop. I just, I feel like RoboCop, maybe the dark humor in RoboCop was a little more evident or at least a little more appreciated somehow well, in this but, movie. 
Yeah, and RoboCop has similar vacillations in tone where sometimes RoboCop puts aside the satire to tell the story just like this does. And then sometimes RoboCop goes over the top in its use of ridiculousness and satire and extreme events to make ridiculous points. <laughs> I love RoboCop. I mean, uh, no, I, I have a lot of fun with Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop, but I think this is a much better movie. And for example, if, if RoboCop is on, I might watch it for a few minutes, but this is a movie that if I happen to flick past it, it's very hard for me not to stay with it for a while. And the movie is built around a lot of big set pieces that are really, really good to watch, and the movie is incredibly well edited. That's what always strikes me when I watch this thing, is this thing is well edited, and it holds together. And, you know, this movie is a tremendous amount of fun. Like, politics aside... And comments on fascism and Lenny Riefenstahl and the Gestapo aside, mm-hmm. this movie is a hell of a lot of fun. And, you know, there's plenty of moments where they sort of wink at you like, yeah, 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 we know we're having a good time here. Yeah, I think RoboCop's a little more grim sometimes. I mean, it has moments where there's overt comedy like in the newscasts and robocop which really are so- and the and the tv commercials like the car is like the sux 2000 or the 2000 <laughs> sux yeah i mean actually you know i mean it has moments where you actually kind of laugh out loud uh that are very obvious jokes right but um this movie doesn't have that but it's it goes down smoother uh, as it a does. whole but also, I think there's a big difference between Casper Van Dien, Dina Meyer, Denise Richards, Jake Busey, Neil Patrick Harris, and Peter Weller. Peter yeah. Weller is a decade or more older, and he plays it in a much darker way, whereas all of these characters have moments of levity and humor where they'll take a very, very serious situation and just sort of flip it on its ear for a second. And like the, the one that I always think of is um, when they're at the, the outpost – and everything's sort of going to hell, and the winged bug kills the general who's losing his mind. Yeah. Uh, there's a funny shot where Jake Busey just starts laughing at, like, the general <laughs> died, and they start laughing about it. And then they all sort of shrug and get back to the business of fighting the bugs. And, like, that little tiny bit, it's just like a four- or three-second shot of Jake Busey starts to laugh and shrug. Like, it just takes all the tension out of that scene for a minute. Yeah, and there's a lot of that throughout this movie, you know, and this is also, you know, in some ways it's kind of 90210 in space. You know, it's an, you know, in the future, by the way, there, there appear to be no unattractive people. Yeah. I mean, they're all unbelievably perfect individuals. Yeah. And it's, it's um, integrated. It's the sorority house and the frat house all integrated at the same time. <laughs> and that's, that's, the, that's the military unit. I mean, literally. Well, and, you know, a friend of mine who I talk about this movie with not infrequently he always says that when he saw starship troopers he walked out and wanted to join the army like he loved it he was like i want to do that uh you know and they have a good time with it and um i don't know like i think people kind of remember all the bug scenes but a lot of the movie is them in school them in training yeah them dealing with a lot of interpersonal stuff like uh, i usually watch it in bits but for this podcast i watched the entire film start to finish and you know, the bug scenes are probably only 20 or 30 minutes of the whole movie. Yeah. And the rest of it is all the other stuff. Yeah, and it's two hours. Yeah, and it's a, it's a full circle. You know, you go from the crew as 
ignorant, uh, pampered high schoolers to battle-scarred veterans by the end looking at the new recruits who are basically them at the beginning of the movie. Right. Um, I think also that this movie is a huge landmark in effects. So this is 97, and I feel like it's half of the quantum leap in effects of 1997. And I remember that this and Titanic came out in 97, and I kind of felt like this was the year that the CGI became seamless or wasn't a distraction. Like when you watch the scenes of the CG bugs in this or you watch the scenes of the Titanic, you know, you're just in the movie. You're not out of the movie. It's not the last Starfighter. It's not young Sherlock Holmes. It's so integrated. And I kind of feel like CGI was never the same after 97. They figured out how to do it seamlessly. And on watching this movie 20 years later, it looks incredible. Yeah, the this movie I think maybe even better than Titanic. The the CG like the bugs are integrated into the movie so well that they they don't there's no sort of preparation or staging for the CGI. They're not really trying to sort of show off like, you know, okay, here's the big CGI cutscene. Here's No, it's just everywhere. look what we can do. Right. Right. It's just squeezed in and they just use it to make the characters or, you know, where they make the, the bugs, scene happen. The scenes right. Make the action scene happen. And they don't uh they don't it's just smoothly integrated and and it looks good enough that it looks real. And at the same time, they make generous use of practical effects. And for example, the Roger Young and all of the large capital ships are all models. And if you go online, you can see them. And for example, a lot of the spaceship models were very large, six, eight, ten foot filming models that they were using that they put incredible detail in. And yep. that blend of practical effects when they need them and CGI when they need them, it's all integrated and it looks fantastic yeah um by the way my buddy the guy i mentioned who said he wanted to join the army after he saw this every once in a while if he looks like he's having a bad day at work i'll look at him and go come on you ape you want to live forever and (laughs) no one else gets it i can get a rise out of him every time um so did you read this book yes a long time ago and i know you know i remember the thing i remember about the book is it's not very satirical and no, they have not and at they all. Have, and they have power suits. Uh, those right. are the things Powered that I remember. Armor. They were, right, so-called power. Um, right, and it's always striking how different it is from the film. And Verhoeven has publicly said he did not like the book. He's never actually completed reading the book. Um, and the book is famous mostly for its discussion scenes where the characters and their teacher there's a lot of flashback scenes or scenes of the troops in training where they're talking about how society should be ordered and what is the role of force in society and the the book actually has relatively few combat scenes with the most notable one being the first chapter which is a full drop and for example to show how different the the book is from the the movie in the first chapter of the book dizzy who i believe is a man in the book dies the last line of the first chapter is dizzy died on the way up uh whereas dizzy flores and this is obviously a huge character and like you said she's you know one of the legs of the the love triangle right um it's funny because when you talk about heinlein a lot of people have obviously very strong feelings about heinlein and 
Many people seem to mention The Moon is a Harsh Mistress as their favorite Heinlein book, but to me, I think Starship Troopers is my favorite Heinlein book. And I've probably read a dozen. I haven't read everything, but I've probably read a dozen of his books. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, that this started out uh, as an unrelated script. You probably read that called Bug Hunt at Outpost 9. And right. then they were working on that, and then it was brought to their attention that there were so many glaring similarities to Starship Troopers that they probably couldn't get around it. Right. So they had to reach out and get the rights to Starship Troopers to move ahead with the project. I wonder how much that cost. I don't know. I mean, pr- maybe not that much. Probably. Uh, you, know, probably you know, at that point, you know, Starship Troopers was uh, almost a 30-year-old book. You know, it had been printed a bunch of times. I don't even know if Heinlein was alive at that time. My suspicion is that he wasn't. Um, yeah, I think he I died just looked it up. He that. died in 88. I just looked it up. Right. Um, so, you know, maybe they got it for a song. But, you know, yeah. it reminds me of, just to make a Star Trek story, it reminds me of um, the episode Arena, uh, where Kirk fights the Gorn, the iconic episode in the uh, where he <laughs> fights the Gorn at the Vasquez Rock. So that... Uh, was written as a, a scre- as a story for uh, Star Trek, and then uh, a legal department said, hey, this is almost identical to a story by Frederick Pohl uh, of the title Arena. And they went to Fred Pohl and they said, hey, can we use your idea and we'll give you story credit and do everything else? And he said, okay. You can actually read uh, the original story Arena online, and it's incredibly similar to the finished product. So makes you wonder how often that really does happen in Hollywood, that there are departments aimed at literally looking through all similar projects or works to make sure there isn't too much overlap. Hmm. Um, And the movie cost, you know, a hundred million. Which was a lot of money. Yeah. In 97. And a cast of unknowns. That's a lot of money for a cast of unknowns. Right. Except for uh, Michael Ironside. He yeah, was like but, even he wasn't a, but even he wasn't a big star then. <clears throat> you know, what's interesting is, you know, Casper Van Dien didn't have a huge career after this. Dina Meyer had consistent B-level success. She was, she's been in a lot of genre work. She was in some Star Trek. She was Joey's girlfriend on Friends. Denise Richards kind of became notorious for being Denise Richards. Right. Um, you know, then you had Jake Busey, who didn't do a ton after this, and Neil Patrick Harris, who mostly spun off into sitcom fame. Um, so it's interesting that this, where this cast went. Yeah. Well, Neil if Patrick you, Harris, probably the biggest. Yeah. Biggest and he's been on, he's been on Broadway. I've listened to a couple of podcasts with Casper Van Dien, who's hilarious to listen to. And, He's very, very open about the fact that he's done a lot of crappy movies and he he takes what his agent gets him and whatever pays the rent. But he kind of feels like this is his one jewel. Like this is the one thing that they can never really take away from him. Like he starred in a huge movie that's a cult hit that people love. And he said that for years he would walk down the street and people would you know, run up to him and yell, kill them all <laughs> or or some such. And he said he he really resented it for a while because he realized he had been typecast. And then as the years passed and so many people came up to him and said how much it meant to him, he just sort of embraced it. And now he's very, very comfortable being known for his whole life as Johnny Rico. Right. Um, have you seen any of the sequels? No, like I said, in one of our other podcasts, I didn't know they made sequels. 
Oh yeah, so there's they five. They made and a bunch of straight to five sequels. Are you serious? Well, sorry, there's five. Well, there's five oh. total. Four movies. sequels is enough. There's there's five total movies and there's a television show. Uh, the television <laughs> show ran for a year or two. It was called Starship Troopers Chronicles. It was okay. It was sort of humbled by the fact that they couldn't really have any profanity and the violence was really really made for kids. But they it was very much a World War II style show. Whereas the the movies, the first three movies are live action and the fourth and the fifth movies are CGI. And I will tell you, having watched everything. Uh, for better or for worse. The first movie is obviously the best. The third and the fifth are actually pretty decent, with the fifth being the second best one. And all five movies are written by the same person, Ed Neumeyer, who has really stuck with it. And Casper Van Dien is in the first, the third, and the fifth, playing Rico at various ages. Really? Uh, and um, Dina Meyer returns in the fifth movie, as Dizzy, who dies in the first movie, but they, I won't give it away, but they bring Dizzy back in a way that is canonical and very, very clever and doesn't leave you doing a double face palm. Hmm. Um, but it's, you know, I mean, these are not movies that you, that played in the theater. These are the movies that, you know, you get from the red box or you Straight watch on video. YouTube or something. Yeah. But, but I will not lie to you. Like they're good treadmill movies. Jolene Blaylock, who played to Paul on Enterprise is the female lead in the third one. Uh, hmm. right as Enterprise was ending, she, uh, she was in that. Um, in between conventions. <laughs> it's funny because she always swore she wouldn't go to conventions, but she goes to conventions. Of course. Um, when they offer to cut you a check, you know. Right, and fly you out and put you in a hotel just to, you know, go on stage and everybody tell you how much they love you. Who wouldn't do that? Right. Um, so I guess we have to give a few minutes um, and acknowledge the overt and incredibly florid Nazi imagery throughout this film. Uh, but that was right deliberate. Down to the, of course, it is deliberate, but right down to, you know, the opening scene, which is you know, almost shot for shot from Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will Nazi propaganda film, which, right. you know, you in the audience are rah rahing with until you realize, like, oh, wait, we're the Nazis. Right. And they, they if you didn't notice, they clue you in when you see the uniforms and you think, hmm, that looks mighty familiar. And, and, then, and as the movie goes on, the uniforms become more overtly Nazified, especially by the end, Carl is basically an SS officer. Carl's a good, yeah, he's a Gestapo officer in an ident- in a black leather trench coat, Gestapo <laughs> trench coat. You know, and, and when he's you totally s- ruthless, right? He right, he he he's Aryan. You know, I mean, the guy, it's like classic. Uh, if you know, if if you didn't notice, they it it, it becomes more and more um, obvious as the movie and goes the, on. It's part of the also- satire. Right, and there's also some stuff borrowed, for example, from Why We Fight by Frank Capra on the other side of the pond. Um, and, you know, there is a, one of my favorite bits in the movie that goes by so fast, you almost can't notice it unless you're really, really paying attention, is there is acknowledgement that we started the war. Like, we are the aggressor species. Uh, right. There's a bit where they're watching the talk show, and one of the characters or one of the people on the talk show says... But we, you know, we entered their space and somebody says like, well, we need room. You know, there's this sort of like Lebensraum remark made. But again, that's the only acknowledgement in the whole film that we, in fact, are the aggressor species in this. Right. There's a lot of, um, just to make a few literary uh, 
illusions. There's a lot of unofficial sequels to Starship Troopers that I think are worth mentioning, and some of which are more or less directly related. And for example, um, have you read the Old Man's War series by John Scalzi? No. So that's there's probably four or five books in that series now, and although it's never explicitly said, it's it seems to me, having read them all, it's extremely intentional that these are essentially sequels to or set in or around the Star Trek Troopers universe. Uh, David Gerald wrote a series of books. David Gerald, the author of Trouble with Tribbles, wrote a series of books. I don't remember what the series was called, but the first one is called A Matter for Men. That's widely considered to be uh, essentially a non-canonical sequel to Starship Troopers. Um, the mo- one that is the most obvious is Armor by John Steakley. John Steakley felt frustrated that the book Starship Troopers contains so little actual combat, so he wrote an unofficial sequel where the main characters, I don't believe ever even named, but it is clearly Johnny Rico. Um, and the book is extensive combat on multiple planets. You know, it's a, I kind it's a of pretty vaguely, thick book. I kind of vaguely remember that. I think I read that. It's pretty good. I read day. it about a decade ago. A friend of mine gave it to me, and it sort of sat on my dresser for about a year, and then I actually picked it up and realized how good it was. And then, you know, you could argue that, for example, the video game Halo is a sequel to Starship Troopers. Edge of Tomorrow uh, overtly is borrowing or winking at Starship Troopers from start to finish. Otherwise known as live, die, repeat. Right. There's no powered armor in this movie, but there is powered armor starting in the third movie. So the first and the second movie looked like this. The third, fourth, and fifth movie, they do wear powered armor. Much, much more in the vein of how things are described in the book. Right. And the powered armor becomes a mainstay of how the stories are told because they can they can use the capabilities of the, the powered armor. In the book, the opening scene like I said earlier, is one full drop. And in the book, there's a lot fewer troopers. Here, for example, there's hundreds and hundreds of troopers running around with essentially rifles, whereas in the book, they use far fewer troopers, but they're incredibly well-armed. And the opening scene, they attack an alien race known as the Skinnies in the book. The Skinnies start off as bug allies and I think become human allies before the book ends. But the implication is they're only dropping maybe a dozen people, and they are laying waste to whole cities. And they're all armed with multiple nukes, and they're dropping nuclear weapons all over. And just a handful of people are killing hundreds of thousands of aliens, right? Um, which is really interesting uh, in terms of how to do it. But in the movie, I guess that, that probably was maybe too much or didn't allow for enough character development. Um, right, so by the way, only... in preparation for this podcast, I got a death from above tattoo on my right bicep. It looks awesome. I thought Just we like said... Johnny and Diz had. I thought we were doing them on our buttocks. <laughs> oh, well, it. you know, <laughs> to each his own. Um, you lied to me. <laughs> um, did you know that originally... Uh, they filmed scenes where there were two love triangles. So the one love triangle was Rico being in love with Carmen, but Dizzy being in love with Rico, which is with persists the, in the final film. And the other the love other, triangle oh, was... Oh, the other one was Neil Patrick Harris being in love with Rico, <laughs> right? Um, the other one was 
Carmen clearly having a romantic relationship with Xander while having a relationship with Rico. And when they did the test screening of that, audiences hated it. And they basically felt that they couldn't have Carmen do that. And then when they ran the early test, the audience very much wanted Carmen to die and not Dizzy because they felt that it portrayed her in such a negative light that the only way that she could essentially atone for cheating on the protagonist was to die. So they cut out almost everything with her and Xander. There's, there's implications that he's attracted to her, but she never really returns his affections overtly. Um, which is ironically, you know, ironically that, uh, anti-feminist um, audience bent uh, really closely echoes Heinlein's original <laughs> <laughs> feelings. Um, who was I going to say? The brain bug, by the way, the brain bug is not CGI. The brain bug is an actual prop. Yeah. So most of the bugs are CG, but the brain bug is an actual physical prop. And if you actually Google it, you can see it. Like the effects house that made the brain bug mounted it on the wall of uh, where they work. And it's a one-to-one scale. It's this enormous prop that's hmm. just hanging on some wall in L.A. somewhere. I thought it would be filled with dwarves, like making it jiggle. Right. I no, I'm sure it was just all animatronic, like Jabba, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know... You can tune out all of this Nazi stuff and all of this satire and just watch this thing as an incredible romp. And for example, the the scene where, where Rico takes down the tanker bug by himself, right, where he's riding right. on its back is a is a just a great action sequence. And and I think probably the best set piece of the whole movie is the the big penultimate not the last battle scene but the penultimate battle scene where they are at the fort and where where uh, they get overrun and dizzy is killed and uh, rajak is killed i mean that has got to be a 10 or 15 minute hyper intense scene that just never ever ever lets up and that shot of michael ironside where he looks over the barricade and they see the asymptotic number of bugs coming over the horizon <laughs> And they know we ain't getting out of here. Like yep. it's, it's. I think that might be the best shot in the entire movie. And yeah, he just and sort of wipes his mouth with his yeah. armored glove, and he's like, "Okay, this Uh-oh. is it." Yeah, and that's also the pinnacle of the CGI. It is because there's so many bugs of different kinds coming at them from around, above, underneath, and that's yeah. and that whole sequence. It's genuinely terrifying. You know, it's funny. My kids couldn't even watch that when I was watching this. Both my kids had to flee the room when they when that scene came on. They were like, "That's horrifying." Nice. Um, <laughs> Take that. Do you know, kids. by the way, what do you know what that scene is based on? No. That scene is based on Zulu. Oh, Did you ever see yeah. Zulu? Sure. Yeah, that's a great old one. So Zulu has almost the exact same scene, and the final scene of Zulu is is almost identical in the way that it's set up where the men are inside a small perimeter and they are surrounded by an enormous number of Zulus who they see from a long distance away coming at them. And the troopers have a lot of sidelong glances at each other where they think, oh my God, this is it. We're not getting out of here. And some of the dialogue in that scene is taken or borrowed heavily. Some of the fall back or retreat to the barricades and some of the the way the camera work is done in that is 
it, and they, they must have been aware of it. It's, there's too many shots and lines in both those scenes that are the same for them not to have made it a conscious homage. Yeah, I mean, um, Verhoeven probably was blown away by Zulu when it, he probably saw it when it came out and was affected and remember yeah, it Mike, the whole yeah. time. Michael Caine is in Zulu. I don't remember who the star is. Michael Caine is like the second or third banana in it, but it's a, it's a very was, young Michael Caine in that movie. That was his breakout role. That was his first movie. He was very that young. That was his first movie? Yeah. I didn't know that. It was yeah, like it was it, like 62 or something like that. I don't know. He, but he's yeah, he's he's very prominent in it. Yeah, um, he plays a an upper class lieutenant who's this effete sort of nothing totally fearless effete guy. Uh and you know there's two lieutenants. One of them is an engineer and the other one's more sort of a little bit more highly placed and Michael Caine is the sort of more elite of the two. Interesting. From, and uh, Michael Caine, who's a Cockney, you know, meaning a lower class sort of, you know, lower class or lower middle class working class guy from London, you know, played this, this uh, blue blood uh, officer in that, that picture. Hmm. I didn't know that backstory at all. That's interesting. Yeah. I haven't seen Zulu in many years, but uh, I watched either. that last battle in preparation for this podcast, and it looks great to this day. Yeah, that's a no good movie. No CGI in Zulu, but uh, <laughs> no, 10,000 a... extras. Yeah, yeah, at least. There's 10,000 <laughs> actual Zulu in like every seed. <laughs> they probably had like 100,000 extras. Um, the, the movie, I guess, too, you know, you're you're very struck by how young everybody is. And I think, you know, 20 years ago, I was closer to the age of some of these characters and I didn't notice it so much. Whereas now when I watch it, you know, I'm very struck by how young everyone is. And they were actually older than they wanted to use. They wanted to use actual high school age people and they didn't think they could pull it off. So, you know, they're probably all in their twenties at this point, but they look pretty young. Right. Especially by the way, Denise Richards looks extremely young. Yeah, she probably was. This is her first, I think this is her first big film. Yeah. Um, and Dina Meyer, she had been in, I think, one or two things before this. She had a little bit of experience under her belt. And I think Van Dien had just been in soaps or stuff like that before this. <clears throat> but I don't know. I mean, I think this holds up really well. I think it's great to watch. And again, you can watch this on so many levels that it sort of lets you pick what you're in the mood for. Like, you just want to watch it for straight sci-fi action, you can do that. And if you want to watch it on deeper levels for satire and farce, you can. Like, it's just, it's sort of, it's sort of like you can take it as you want it. Well, the thing about Verhoeven that's particularly interesting is that the whole jumble comes at you at once, and you experience all of it simultaneously. You know, you experience the excitement, revulsion, satire, uh, meta knowledge, all those things are simultaneous while you're watching his movies. And that that's sort of the thing he does that's really interesting. And uh, this movie, Robocop's like that. This this movie's certainly like that. Um, maybe Total Recall. He made Total Recall, right? Didn't he? He did. He made Total yeah. Recall. Total Recall to um, a similar extent is also the same way. And remember, too, this is the guy who made Basic Instinct. Yeah. 
right? He also made, sorry, Call, Paul, he made Showgirls. Show right, I was thinking Call <laughs> Girls, but right, Showgirls, not as well received. I actually received. saw Showgirls in the theater. <laughs> 17 times, I might add. <laughs> um, the funny thing about Showgirls is, you know, it's Elizabeth Berkley uh, from Saved by the Bell, and I just couldn't stop seeing her as uh, Jesse from Saved by the Bell when I was watching Showgirls. He made Hollow Man, which is the uh, Kevin Bacon, uh, Elizabeth Shue movie about uh, invisibility, which was almost too much of a hard sci-fi film for its own good. Like, it, it, it has absolutely no moments of levity in it. And it's actually a pretty good sci-fi movie, but it's kind of relentless in its portrayal, and it didn't really do well. And then after 2000, he really kind of slowed down. Like, he made something called Black Book in 2006 Well, I think I did he, not see. Yeah, but I think he, and, I think he went back to Holland, he, you know, at that yeah, point. Yeah, I don't think Black Book is in English. No, I think he went back, he went back to the Netherlands and started right, making maybe stuff it's there. In, maybe, I think it's in Dutch. Right, which is um, interesting that he you know at that point would decide to do that i mean i think it's it's uh it's kind of cool well and maybe he had maybe he had enough of hollywood i mean you know the guy's 79 maybe he wanted to move home yeah i mean uh, i can't blame him and it must be interesting to to go back once you've sort of made it quote in the big time you know in hollywood and go back you're going to be very well received in the smaller film community oh sure yeah. When I was in college for a film class, we watched Soldier of Orange, which uh, features a very, very young Rutger Hauer right. uh, involving right. the German occupation of the Netherlands yeah. in World War II. And I, I haven't seen it. it since college, but I remember it made a huge impact on me and the whole class when we watched it. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that. Yeah. Um, in, in this other interview with Casper uh, Van Dien, he said one other thing that I thought was worth bringing up. He said, they asked him in his interview, are you, what else are you proud of? And he said that, I guess he was Tarzan. He played Tarzan. And, and he said that um, the Edgar Rice Burroughs Society, because he wrote Tarzan, correct? Yes. Uh, he said the Edgar Rice Burroughs Society said that of any, everyone who had ever portrayed Tarzan on screen, he was closest to what the books had in mind. He said that Johnny Rico and Tarzan were the two things that he's the most proud of. And then they said to him in this interview, and I thought, I thought, I'm telling you, he came off as a very insightful, interesting guy. And they said to him, how would you feel if they remade this movie without you? Mm-hmm. And he said, I'd feel fine. And they said, what do you mean? Cause this is your iconic character. And he said, yeah, but there were a lot of Tarzans before me. So right. somebody else can play Johnny Rico after me. And he said, if they remade it, he wanted to play Mr. Ratchik. He said that was his hope that they would cast him hmm. as the teacher. So he could come full circles from playing Rico to playing the teacher. Interesting. Yeah. Now I'm telling you, like, if you get a chance, he does, he, he does a lot of podcasts. Uh, there's at least five or six good interviews with him uh, online. But he's, he's very insightful and funny, and he has no illusions about who he is. You know, he doesn't try to come off like this great Shakespearean thespian. He basically says, I'm a good-looking guy, and I did a bunch of action movies, and, you know, I, I do conventions and stuff like this and it's okay and i'm happy like he came off as very very balanced whereas in in some of them he's often co-interviewed with dina meyer whereas dina meyer does not embrace it the same way like i think she may view starship troopers as just one of many things she did and maybe doesn't want to be just known for it whereas uh casper van Dien was more than comfortable being identified for now and all eternity as uh as johnny rico 
Right. Um, anything else you want to say? We, we're we're going we've gone quite deep on this. Yes. I don't know. I I have very very positive feelings about this movie, and my dad and I used to watch this all the time. Like if this was on cable, my dad would watch this. My dad loved Paul Verhoeven movies. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know if he oh. saw Showgirls, but he loved <laughs> Total Recall, RoboCop, and Starship Troopers. He probably liked Showgirls, <laughs> just didn't tell you about it. <laughs> I guess maybe a lot of people like Showgirls just <laughs> pretended that they didn't. Uh, on that uh, note, <laughs> good night, everybody. <laughs> uh, now now we got to do a podcast on Showgirls. <laughs> I don't know about that one. You know what's interesting about Showgirls just for two seconds is that um, Kyle MacLachlan is it. You know, like they have Gina Gerson, Kyle MacLachlan in it. Like they try. You know, like there's some real cast there, and they still kind of couldn't pull it across. Although the whole time I was watching Showgirls, as much as I saw Elizabeth Berkeley as Jesse from Say by the Bell, I just saw Paul Mwadib up there. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Being the sleazy nightclub owner in Vegas, Paul Mwadib got all the way back from Arrakis to work in Vegas. Um, <laughs> if you get a chance, though, I will just say, just as we're closing, it's worth watching the third and the fifth sequels. I would skip the second and the fourth. They really do not have the same spirit or sort of joie de vie of the first one. But the third one is not bad. And the third one tries to address some fairly complex philosophical questions in the context of a straight-to-video sci-fi movie, which is unexpected. And it's nice to see Jolene Blaylock. Um, and it's the first appearance of Powered Armor. But the fifth one, I believe it's called Traitor of Mars, which just came out this year, is surprisingly good for an animated CG movie. Okay. Um, that's the fifth in the Starship Troopers franchise. Like, they breathed a little new life into it, and they were really able to recapture the feeling of the 1997 movie. And some of the earlier ones had shied away from that. Like, they didn't want to make it too much like it. But in the fifth one, they really have embraced that look and feel. I think Van Dien is even the producer of that movie. Hmm. Um, but it's uh, it's definitely worth a watch. You know, as I said earlier, these are good treadmill movies, you know? Like, right. when you're on the treadmill watch something like that. The time will go fast. You'll have a good time. I don't know if I can recommend too much the Starship Troopers TV show, although not only did I watch every episode, I bought the entire <laughs> thing on DVD. I think uh, you're going to produce the sixth one. It's yeah, Starship Troopers. Aye, aye, aye. That's the title. <laughs> Starship Troopers Roach Motel. <laughs> uh, all right, man. I I'm due to get back to the Roger Young I got to go into the tank and uh, get my leg wound mixed up, uh, sorry, fixed up before our next podcast. I, I tripped walking down the stairs on the way to make this podcast, so I got to go get back in the tank. By the way, the tank is very similar to the back to tank and Empire Strikes Back, but I'll just leave that at that. Anything else you want to add? The quality of the acting is probably slightly better, though, in the back to tank. <laughs> <laughs> I do troopers. love, by the way, that uh, when he's in the when he's in the tank, that Dizzy kisses the glass. That's the yes. Guy. Alrighty, Johnny Rico, uh, right. we'll be looking for you. <laughs> <laughs>